So um, thank you for the clock. Here we go. I want you to trust me. <laughs> Anytime anybody says trust me, do you? We never do, right? It's meaning like, ah, what's it going to do? Okay, but trust me for a second here, okay? Because here's what I want you to do. I want you, in a second, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to think about this. What are the top three things that are concerning you right now? You might be a little worried about them. You might be more than that. You might be really worried about them or fearful even or whatever. But, but there's just the top three things that are sort of on your mind, on your heart, in your life that are bugging you. And as you do that, I want you to remember one thing. Sometimes we have stuff that is so long standing that it no longer feels like it's a top three because there's other things. But this is the one that's the sort of constant that our life has become. Okay? So I want you to just let the Holy Spirit quicken to you. There's a very important thing we're going to do here in a moment. And so I just want to just close your eyes now and just let the Lord speak to you. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What are the three top things, just three, not more, just three, that what are the top three things that are bugging you? Okay, now, open your eyes, and this is where I need you to trust me. If, I don't want you, to, I'm going to ask for raising of hands on certain things. If you don't want this to be known publicly, don't raise your hand. <laughs> okay, but you know what I mean? We're, you're in a family. This is a place where you can, these are things that are common to us, and that's one of the things I want us to see. But, I, but what I want you to do is I want people to see a particular thing that I think the Lord's going to do here, all right? So I just want to ask, vulnerable, transparent, but, you know, trusting our friends and so on, uh, how many people in your top three was a thing of health? Some capacity. Raise your hands. Do you see? Just look around the room. Do you see that? It's a smattering, more than a smattering. Okay. How many people would say it's a relational thing, spouse or kids, parents, co-workers. See that? Just a little bit more, which is what I expected. Okay. How many things, how many people would say job? Job was one of your top three. I expected that. I expected that to be our lowest one. But now I want you to see something. How many people in your top three right now is finances? Raise your hand. I'm shocked. Really? There's that few? I thought there would have been a lot more. Okay. Uh, and the reason for that, we're going to see in just a second. But I just want to do something with you here. Let me ask you a question. Would you like to be in a place in your life where you were never concerned about finances ever again? How many people would like that? Raise your hands. Okay. Ever again. Because you do know that if we asked you over the period of time, money's going to be in everybody's top three at some points in time. Right? Okay. But this is not a sermon about money at all. Not really at all. It's using that to get to something much deeper. So let me ask you this question. How many of you would like, and I'm serious about this question now, how many of you would like to be in a place where you really absolutely didn't have a concern? How many of you would like to be, when I say what's your top three concerns, you looked and looked and looked in your heart and there wasn't one at all. Would you like that? I can't believe not everybody's hands going up on that one. 
to never be concerned again. Okay? Well, watch, though. Watch. It's a good point. She said it wouldn't be life, but watch what happens. So what we're going to do, that's where we're going right now. Joel Hallett, this is, I, I just love you. You are a beautiful voice, beautiful human being, beautiful person, beautiful family, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So just love you. So would you just pray for the sermon, lift up somebody else too? Thank you. Father, thank you so much for bringing our family so many years ago to a church that is not just a place to come on Sundays, a church that is a family in the most meaningful sense of the word. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for giving us Kurt as the shepherd of this family and, and in many ways the father figure of this family. And I ask that you would help him to speak exactly the words that you want spoken today and prepare our hearts to hear it in exactly the context that you want them heard today. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, additionally, Father God, we lift up our old home church, Northwest Church in Federal Way. Amen. And uh, Pastor Steve Shell, who Amen. I love very, very much, and uh, Amen. just ask that you would continue to help them to be the bright, bright light city on a hill that they are in Federal Way. Thank you, Jesus. And continue to grow their ministry in Jesus' name. Thank Amen. you, Jesus. I may end up having to sit down. <laughs> we are in Luke. Jesus has entered the city. He is, within a very short period of time, going to be crucified. He knows that. He's told people that. He's the only one that gets it, including of the religious leaders. They don't know that they're going to do this either. But the point is, in a very short period of time, he's going to be crucified. As he comes into Jerusalem, as we saw three weeks ago, I talked about this thing where they came to him and said, by whose authority do you do this? And we answered it, and what we showed was is that when Jesus gives his answer, the amazing thing about Jesus, and man, this is a proof of who he is, which is to say supernatural. Nobody in the natural can do this. But do always remember something. Jesus didn't do what he did as God. He did it as anointed by the Holy Spirit. So everything he did, you can do too. And what he did was when he gave his answer, it was right on every single level of what was going on in this charged moment. Remember, we brought the people up here and we had Jesus over here and the religious leaders over here and a crowd here and the disciples here. And the point was, is his answer was working for all of those constituencies perfectly. It was confronting them. It was getting people to understand deeper things. It was doing all this. And it was not only in that moment that it was correct, but it was the kind of thing that they didn't get any armor to use against him later. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you said something that was perfect in the moment, but later on when context changed, all of a sudden it was hurt you in some fashion? This is, nobody does this right, but the Holy Spirit does, and Jesus did. Now, with that said, then the next week what we did is Robert Kelly opened up on the, on the vineyard, story of the vineyard, and the story of the vineyard is real simple. It goes like this. The master has left the vineyard to people here, and he's gone away. And now he's sending back people to get from the vineyard what's due, which in the God case is God has left, and he's sending back prophets to get worship. And what happens is, is that the people don't receive them as from him. In fact, what they do is they say, they beat them and they shame them and they send them home, okay? 
And then the master says, well, surely if I send my son, they're not going to kill my son, right? They're not going to do anything bad to him. They'll surely listen to him. So he sends his son, and what do they do? They say, if we kill him, then we get the vineyard, and we, don't, we can do anything we want to do, and we don't have to do anything about that anymore. So they kill the son. Now look at the context of that. Jesus says this within a day of dying by their hand. He's the son who was sent by the father who's going to be killed by the people that he left in charge. Okay? So this is an incredibly profound moment. Now what happens is, is that is we, we looked at that verse, and that's the context for this one, because when he answered them, he answered them so perfectly that they could not answer him back. Remember, we saw that they were totally embarrassed about what took place there, okay? And they couldn't answer him back on the vineyard thing because he was saying it right to them. And now what happens is, here we are. And so what happens is they're mad, and they're going after him, but here's what they're going after him for. Watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he would arrest Jesus. Here's what they're trying to do. They're not trying to kill him right now. They're trying to just get him put in prison. That'll shut him up. And it will also undermine his authority to the people because the people, there's this thing about Messiah comes to overcome the Roman oppressors. If the Romans can arrest him and shut him up and put him in prison and he dies some lonely death in some dungeon, then what authority does he have? He clearly is not Messiah and people quit following him. So it's not just to get him to shut up, it's to get people to quit following him at all. This is their goal. And remember, the Jewish leaders are not sending the idiots. They're sending the best debaters they have. They're sending the most clever people they have. They're sending the people that can set the best traps, okay? There's an old political yarn, and I'm going to get it wrong, so help me with this. But I think it's the reporter comes up to the politician and says, when did you stop beating your mother? And the idea is, is that you can't answer the question because, see what I mean? Okay, now there's a way to do that, but anyway. So the point is, is then he goes on and he says, teacher, they said, now look at how they set him up. We know that you speak and teach what's right and are not influenced by what others think. So there's two audiences listening to this right now. The people who are right there and the Roman authorities. And they're saying, we know that you just tell the truth. You tell it like it is, right? But the, but the fact is, is that if he does tell it like it is, as far as they can tell, it's going to work out great for them because here's the question that they ask. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I have to say, they laid a lot of traps for Jesus over the years. This is, I think, the best one. There is no way to answer this. Forget about what he actually ends up saying if you know it. I'm just telling you right now, there's no way to answer this. In fact, as I, as I talk about it a little bit, what would you answer? Because here's the thing, here's the thing that you have to deal with. If you say one word that supports the right of the Romans to take tax, you lose with the people. They quit following you. You have no more influence over them. Why? Because this is not tax like us. See, when we're taxed, we hate it, right? 
but at least it's supposed to go to roads and helping people and the military and other things that we consider to have some public good value, right? But, but see, th here's how they think about it. Literally, this is the Romans reaching into my pocket pulling money out of my pocket to the point that I don't have enough for my family, for my business, for me. This puts me short, and they're taking that money in order to build a bigger, better, stronger army to get taxes from me. <laughs> See it? This is not social good taxes. This is raping me. This is stealing from me. This is taking what is mine in order to use it against my own interests. So this is a hated thing. This, these taxes, they hate it much, much, much worse than we ever did. So if Jesus says even one word about, you know, if he tries to be PC, you know, it's, well, you know, a certain amount of tax is appropriate because it's for the social good. But, you know, we think that they're pretty, and the way that they take them is not fair, and we should work on this right? If he answers anything like this, the people are like, to heck with you, and you're prevaricating. You're not telling it like it is. Because here's how we think it is. Don't pay. We're forced to pay, but you can't sit there as a religious leader, and particularly somebody who might be overcoming the Romans, and tell us we should pay. Do you see it? So that's the one side of the problem that he's got. The other side of the problem that he's got is super simple. If he says even one word, about don't pay your taxes, he's arrested that day. He's put in jail. And they have witnesses this time. Remember, they tried to get witnesses against him at one point, and nobody could come up with anything because he didn't say anything that would work for the Romans. But if he had said, don't pay your taxes in any way, shape, or form, they would have taken the witnesses and gone to him and said, look, see what he says about you? He's got all these people following him, and he's raising up a bunch of people that are thinking they shouldn't be paying you your taxes. And the Roman governor says, put him in jail, lock him up, throw away the key. See it? So I'm asking you, what would you answer? And you don't get to go home and think about it. You don't get to go home and pray about it. You don't get to go home and work on it. You have to answer from your heart in the moment, in a way that keeps you out of jail, and that speaks something to people so that they will not only not continue to follow, Jesus doesn't care who follows him, but he is trying to tell them that they should, and he's trying to show them why they should. And so you need to answer in such a way as that it not only doesn't turn them off, but it inspires them all the more to follow. Do you see it? Could you have done that? Because I can promise you right now, I have thought about it, and I could not. But of course, Jesus being Jesus... No, remember? Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit. He saw through their trickery by the Holy Spirit, and he said, show me a Roman coin who's, and then whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, we have to take a moment to understand what a profound thing Jesus has just said. Okay? This is the coin. It's got Caesar's face on it. This is Caesar Augustus. This is one of the coins minted when he was Caesar. And each Caesar had their own coins minted with their face on them. Right? Now, I want you to do I want you to think about this for a second. Money is funny. We have a phenomenally complicated relationship with money. Don't we? Okay. I did something a few years back. 
I was preaching a sermon, and the sermon was, somebody should be able to know what you care about, what your priorities are, by looking at your spending. Not just your budget, but your actual spending. And in order to demonstrate that, I took my Quicken, and I showed people much of a month, as much as I wasn't trying to hide anything. I was literally showing them the whole month. And I just want to say something, see, in this culture and with me, you kind of think that that's okay, but would you want to do that? I can tell you that after I did that, and I did that probably five or six years ago, and to this day, when Julie wants to say something to me, not in a catty, mean way, but she wants to tell me just how frustrating I can be to her, she'll say, and you took our finances and you showed the whole church what our spending was. Because that's how we are about it, right? Would you like somebody going and looking at every single dime that you spend in your life? Would you like that? We don't like that. This seems like an invasion of our space and our privacy, doesn't it? Now, when you get down to the bottom of it, it goes to this level. And here's the level. If somebody walks up to you right now, they don't have a gun, they don't have a knife, and they're not threatening, but what they say to you is, give me all the money that you have. Give me all the money in your pockets right now, right? If you say that to somebody, now you, I know you, and I love you, and you'd actually give it to me, but you don't count then, so I gotta, I gotta look at somebody else, okay? <laughs> But the point is, is if you say that to people, here's the way that we respond. No, this is my money. You want money? Go get your own. <laughs> get a job. Do something. Earn some money. That's what our natural tendency is to say. Do you see it? There's this thing that says, you want my money? No, I earned this. This is my money. Do you see the emotional connection that we have to this? This allows us to do things like pay rents and mortgages and all this kind of stuff. But the way that we think about it is this is mine. Now look what Jesus just did. He broke that emotional connection. And provably so. Whose picture's on that coin? What makes you think that's yours? He may let you have it for a little bit. But who's, that's a piece of metal. Whose piece of metal is that? It couldn't be possible to make it more easy to prove whose piece of metal that is. Because it's that guy's. <laughs> the guy who put his face on it. Right? He signed it. <laughs> I got to tell you this. Julie and I were uh, in Vail. And I really liked her. And, and uh, the people were getting broken into and stolen. And, and so you had to mark your stuff. And they were giving everybody a little things to mark your stuff. And I put my social security number on her beloved, uh, what, are they, what were they called? Is Julie here? These amps. Oh, she was here. She'd be so mad at me right now. Uh, <laughs> she's still mad about this one. But I put my social security number on the, the power amps that were the tubes. Marantz. No, not Marantz. Anyway, these very famous power amps that everybody had back in the day. And I put my, and that was really a lousy thing of me to do. I just have to say, I knew when I was doing it, I, should, I shouldn't be doing that. But I put my social security number on there. Well, see, that made it mine. That makes it his. Do you see it? That's his. What is this thing after all? You're thinking of it in terms of, I earned it. Sweat and blood, I earned it, and I need it because I got to pay for these things with it. But what Jesus has just done is he's just severed all of that. And what he said is, is he said, this is a piece of metal with some guy's picture on it. 
Give it back to the guy whose picture's on it. He severed this emotional attachment that we have to the coin in our pocket. Now, if he had just done that, that would have done a lot. He wouldn't have gotten you home. He had to do something else, didn't he? And give to God what belongs to God. What the heck does that mean? I'm going to show you what it means, but even better, I'm going to show you what it feels. So now I need you to trust me again. Close your eyes. Picture the scene that we did three weeks ago where there's Jesus standing, and then there's the two religious leaders standing, and then you're all in between, and we're watching a tennis game here, right? The religious leaders come and they say, by whose authority do you do this? And everybody looks at him and says, yeah, whose authority is it? And then he says, well, I'll answer it, but you tell me, was John from God or not? And they turn back, yeah, was John from John or not? Do you see it? You see the tennis game we're watching? And we're turning back and forth. So here's the tennis game right now that's going on, okay? Just, I want you to feel this, okay? Are we supposed to pay taxes or not? Everybody turns to Jesus, yeah. What about that? That's a big deal, tell me about that. See, you wanna know the answer to that. Are we supposed to do this or not? And then he says, let me see a coin. Now picture the coin in your mind. Picture this scene. And he takes the coin and he shows you the picture of the guy whose coin it really is. And he says, whose picture's on this? Whose is this? And you have to say Caesar. And so he says, well, give to Caesar then what's Caesar's? But now watch, and give to God what's God's. What's God's? What is God's stuff? Tell me. Us. No, us. Do you see what happens? Keep your eyes closed, would you? I want you to feel this moment. You're in the middle of what you think to be a debate about one thing, and all of a sudden Jesus has just dropped this down 10 layers or more. Do you see what he just did? All of a sudden, he just took you to a much deeper place. What is God's? You, the child of God, the chosen one of God, the one who has the cattle on a thousand hills and who made all of creation and who has chosen you, who is holding you, who's caring for you, who's Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Rapha and Jehovah all these other things. This is the God who is holding you precious. You are holding on to a piece of metal as if it had some value and it has none. But God is holding on to you as something that has value. Do you feel it? You're not arguing about Jesus and taxes anymore. You're not even thinking about that piece of metal anymore. It has been completely transcended by the fact that he's saying, give to God what is God's. And you had to take a moment, a beat, to figure out what is God's. And suddenly you realize what is God's is you. Oh my gosh. Oh my Lord. Oh my God. Wow, I've been totally taken out of this moment. Do you see it? 
Now open your eyes. The way the scripture says this is, there's a peace of God that surpasses every thought and it guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we were doing that exercise, do you see how you came into peace? There was consternation when we were talking about taxes and world and ownership and bills and there was a worry, there was a gut, there's a thing that tenses us. But when we started talking about God owning us, it takes us to an entirely different place and all of a sudden you're in a place of peace that transcends the metal, the money, the bills, and everything else. In fact, the message, I think, captures what happened in this moment just perfectly. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. Now listen to this. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Isn't it? When his presence transcends and overwhelms what you now suddenly see as superficial despite how worried you were about it. Right? Now this was such a profound moment that it stopped everybody in their tracks. The religious people failed to trap him by what he said in front of people. Instead, look what they were. Let's paraphrase. Blown away. He just took me someplace. We thought we had him. <laughs> and he just took me to an entirely different reality. An entirely different moment that transcended everything that we thought. Took us to an entirely different place and it made them become silent. It made them stop in the face of this. Do you see it? This is what God is saying when he says, do not be anxious for anything, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The world, the Gentiles, they seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows that it's important. He's not saying it's unimportant. But he knows that you need them. But what he says is, is, seek me first. Seek my kingdom, what it is to be standing right with me, and all these things will be added to you. In fact, the message is particularly powerful in this sermon as a translation. So let me repeat that in the message. What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax. To not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. The getting anxiety consumes us and we can't hear the still small voice of the God who wants to just give. We get consumed and wrapped up and boiled up and rolled up in a way that we are not at peace and we can't receive his presence and peace because of it. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over such things. But you know God and how he works. You know God. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. Listen to this. You will find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Let me... 
In order to really get to the depths, I just have to do one last thing. We're schizophrenic on this particular issue. This is what I call a rubber meet the road issue. And here's what a rubber meet the road issue means. It means that it's so fundamental to the way that we think and act and really are that we actually, in church and when we think about it, we can actually become thinking that we're something quite different than we actually are. We can think, I'm generous, until our brother that's asked 20 times asks for something that is going to take something that's sacrificial. And you can still argue about whether it's generous to do that and all that kind of stuff, but just, I'm not trying to go there. What I'm trying to go to is we think that we're godlike in terms of our willingness to help. And as long as it's 50 bucks, we probably are. But make it something that's more. And we suddenly discover something about ourselves, which frankly, we keep pressed down under the surface, schizophrenic, double-minded. We hold on to one truth up here and think that we're living it. And so we think that we're good and okay and right. But the fact is there's this other level down here that if it ever comes into play, you just discover who you really are. This happened, this was, this was confronted by my father one time in a particularly powerful fashion. We were on one of those vacations that's kind of once in a lifetime. Uh, there were no kids yet with any of the boys, and about half were married and half had girlfriends. And so there was a full contingent. There was the five boys and their wives and or dates, and then muzz and pops, or and their girlfriends, I mean, but then muzz and pops. And so there was, what is that, 12, I guess? So there's 12 of us, and we're staying in a little place called Linz, Austria. And Austria, if you know it, is incredibly mountainy, most of it. And because of that, you can't have big, sprawling cities because there's just jagged mountains, and then it kind of gets where it's a little flat, and then there's a village there. And so there's a little village right in the middle of somewhere. And it's, when I say a little village, I mean like three, 4,000 people maybe. And Linz, I think, it was three or 4,000 people, something like that. And there's these darling little hotels that are just, you know, right out of the fairy tale. And we're staying in one that's six stories tall, and this one happens to have a pool on the top. And the pool is the whole top floor, but as you go towards the front of the building, there's something, I can't remember what it was, but that takes up space over here so that it creates just a little niche, a little nook that you can go back into, the 12 of us, and be somewhat private and do a devotional. Because when we're doing a family vacation, we do devotionals. And so we're in this little nook where there's a kind of a greenhouse thing and it's snowing outside and it's just beautiful. It's fairy tale. It's beautiful. It's so privileged. And we're sitting there and my dad starts off the devotional by saying these words. I'm 55 years old and God has provided for me financially beyond anything I could have ever expected for every single one of those years. And I'm scared to death about tomorrow. See what he did? He pulled back the curtain on the schizophrenia and the double-mindedness. And he said, I have every reason ever to trust God. And the truth is, I'm very, in, in many, 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 many ways, I do. But there are some things 
or I don't. <laughs> and so that has you in bondage. That captures you. You cannot be a peaceful person when there's something that owns you. Not really. You can be peaceful to a degree, but when it gets to a certain place, the consternation will come out, right? Here's what God's saying. No one serves two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And again, the message gets it just right. You can't worship two gods at once. Now listen to this. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Now listen to this. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. Do you see it? When you fall in love with money, God is not about money. And if that's what you care about, you don't like that he doesn't care about that. And he wants you to not care about it, and you do, and so you don't like him. Or likewise, when you fall in love with God, you start realizing it's just coins. And it makes you hate the things of the world and the ways that it's trying to get bondage and rule over you. You see it? You can't worship God in money both. We always say this, we're in the world, but not of it. See, when we're born from our natural parents, we are descendants of Adam and Eve, and that's the genetic and the propensities, the nature that was handed down to us, and that nature is of the world. It cares about the things the world cares about. It cares about money. It cares about power. It cares about a whole lot of things, right? And the bottom line is it cares about these things a lot, and you care about these things a lot. But then one day, all of a sudden, God comes and borns you again, makes you new inside, gives you a new nature. And as of that moment, you are actually now of another kingdom. The problem is we don't really know that kingdom and we're very good at knowing that kingdom. And so even though your feet are here, your head is here. And you are still locked into this old way of thinking, even though what God is trying to do is to get you to start living here, put down the roots, start getting the nourishment of what's over here, start getting the rivers of living water that come up inside of us and start to make us feel and think and be different for real. You've got to be nourished from this other side. You have to be. And where we all do, we call it the battle over the mind. Are you going to put your mind on this or are you going to put your mind on that? And this is why Jesus is telling us, look, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It doesn't just mean in time. It doesn't just mean it's at hand like it's come now. It certainly does mean that, but that's not all it means. What he also means is the kingdom of God is right here. It's right here. It's not even within reach. It's it's. It's here. Now, you can live as if it's not by living in the old. Or you can, and I always think of it this way, it's that image, right? This is, see, if that's to you, that's a line, and it's such a thin line that you cannot see it even though it's right in front of you. But it's not actually a line, it's a plane. And when you start understanding it, when it goes like this, it goes flip. Now all of a sudden you're going, oh my gosh, look at that. Here's the kingdom of God. It is flipped. I see it. 
I understand what it is. I'm going to live in it. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to give you a testimony. I told you the sermon wasn't about money at all. I'm going to give you a testimony right now about something that's not anything to do with money, but it's everything to do about what we're talking right now. And this came, the testimony came unsolicited from me after a thing that we did the other night. And this person came up to me and said, you just said something, and I want to tell you a story about what God's done in me about this. And then I said, please write that down. And I did post it on Facebook, so some of you might have already read it, because it was just so powerful. But I want you to hear this dynamic that I'm talking about, about how to live in another kingdom and what happens when you live there more and more and more. So listen to this person's testimony. I've always struggled with consistently doing devos. It, it always seemed to be the last thing on my to-do list because everything else was more important and had to get done. Or I was running late, or I didn't have time, or I was too tired, or I forgot, or, or, or you catch the drift. And really, wasn't listening to worship music on my way to work the same as doing devos? The answer to that is no, and here's why. It wasn't until the past few months that I started to really prioritize doing devos every day. And over time, I consistently saw the difference it was making in my life. The more consistent time I spent with God, the more I got out of my devotionals and the more the word felt alive and filled my soul. I can now noticeably tell the difference between how my day goes when I'm not doing devos versus when I am doing my devos. When I do my devos, I'm more attuned, I love this, I'm more attuned to what God is trying to tell me. Listen to this one. I pray for others versus just thinking about myself. This is a total change. It sparks conversation between me and God when I used to go days without talking to him. My day is way more productive and the conversations I have are more life-giving and fruitful. I feel more at peace. I think peace and presence are synonyms in God. His presence is peace and his peace is his presence. I am not saying devos will make you have a great day every day, but I am saying I crave doing devos, devos now because I know what it's like to not do them. I now start my days with devos and I feel like the rest of my day just falls into place. I encourage you to stop making excuses like I did and just try it out. You'll see the difference devos make in your life and in your relationship with God. Now, the thing I really want to call attention to you is this. It isn't the first day you do devos that everything changes. It's not how it works. It's a muscle like any muscle. And the more you do it, the more you become accustomed to it. I used to be a runner. I need to be a runner again, but I'm not. But I used to be a runner, and I'm telling you, if I didn't run, I felt badly. Anybody who's really a runner knows what I'm talking about. Literally, let's be careful and clear about what it was. I was an addict. Okay, because it was releasing endorphins in my brain, which is kind of an opioid, does the same, goes the same places. And the fact of the matter was I felt like I wasn't getting my fix. And I literally would be anywhere at any time. And I go, I just feel, I don't feel right. And then I would go out and I would go run my six miles. And when I got back, I felt right. I dosed myself. Well, here's what this person is saying. When you start living in his peace and his presence, the more you get your mind out of there and into here, the more that you do this, the more that you start seeing what's wrong with that. 
the more you start seeing what's right with this. The more inclined you are to not go back there, the more inclined you are to stay here. I made a deal last week. I'm following up on it. Some people contacted me about it. If you're having trouble with doing devos, call me. We will work on it. But in terms of the sermon right now, but I want you to see what God is trying to say as he's saying, set your minds on the things that are above, the transcendent truths, the real kingdom, the kingdom of God, the one that is going to last. This one goes to dust. This one is the one that lasts. And so he's saying, not on the things that are on earth. And it's from that place, and only from that place, God's kingdom where we have an answer. You remember what I asked you at the very beginning? Could you answer the question? If somebody came to you and said, should we pay taxes or not? You answered from where you sit in the world, and you came up with what? Nothing. But what if you were living the whole of your life in this place in God where money just didn't mean anything to you? It wasn't the concern that it was. It didn't have the hold on you that it did. It wasn't the emotional attachments because it already been severed by God and you've been brought into a fuller, richer reality where you could say things that were absolutely true. And maybe they weren't the same thing that Jesus said, but they were just as life-giving because they were the things that come through you about the truth that you've learned, about the way the world is trying to get you in bondage and get on top of you and get you pressed down. When in fact, what God is trying to do is to release you and save you and free you. And what I want to say about that is this. When we, see, when we get that answer, when we can, because we're living in there and we get that answer, and when we're, then we become living examples of that answer. And when we become living examples of that answer, people are moved. Just like they were in that moment. See that? We want to help people. We want to move them. So we try and argue them in using the world's logic. You know what works a thousand times better than the world's logic? The presence of God and peace in your life. Because they ask you a question from the consternation that they live in in this world. And you answer it from a place that their heart goes, I don't even know if that's true or not, but it's so beautiful. I have to try. That's just better. That's just life. There's... Okay, right? When the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When the Lord gets to us and the rubber meets the road place, when he gets to the hardest place, I, people always say, you know, start with the small stuff and work your way up. I totally agree with that. But you know what? Sometimes God takes us right to the hardest place. And once you get the hardest place, the other stuff is just easy. When you get to the rubber meets road place and you can really trust God in this, it becomes really easy to trust God in all kinds of other stuff. It's just natural. So here's what we're doing today. Here's what I think God wants us to do today. He wants to give us a paraphrase. The peace of God that passes all the things that we're, we were formerly worried about. Right? The presence of God that takes us out of whatever it was we were in consternation about. Now, here's the point. This isn't that word. Remember I told you that word was exactly the sermon? I wish, you could, I wish we could literally replay the word and hear it. Because she also went to the disciples and what they found. And this is right where the Lord wanted me to take us right now. Because what he said was, the disciples, what God wanted, the disciples found a way to live transcendent of the world. Do remember something. 
they were killed. 11 of the 12 and a whole bunch of them were martyred and all kinds of bad things happened to them. And they never lost hope. They never lost sight of the thing that was transcendent of anything that might be happening to them. Nothing could get to them. They were truly living transcendent of this world. Now, they couldn't get there. Only God can get you there. But God who authored will perfect. God who begun will complete. You see it? And because they lived in this transcendent peace presence of God, all kinds of people all over the world were touched and moved. <laughs> That's how they did what they did. They didn't come in and argue with eloquent words of man's wisdom. They came in with a demonstration of the power of God, and that doesn't just mean miracles. That means they were living a life that people were saying, I don't understand the life that you live. I don't understand where you're getting that from, but it feels right to me. It feels better to me. It makes the things that I was concerned about seem superficial. And so I want to live where you're living. That seems better to me. So the question I have for all of us, and I think the questions God is asking is, do you want that? Do you? It's actually super simple to get to. I think Devo's is a superb place to start. But I gotta tell you, just do this in everything that you're doing. Always remember there's two ways to think about it, one that's above and one that's not. Do the above. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you right now to touch all of our hearts, all of our minds, to touch us. Right now, God, would you please take us right back to the peace that we had when we did the little experiment, when we did the little exercise of, of the coin and realizing that we were yours? Would you please bring us back to that place of knowing that the God who created all has wrapped his arms around us, holds us, protects us, provides for us, loves us, cares for us, has a future for us. God, in Jesus' holy, precious name, would you let us live in that peace right now? And then, God, we have this funny way of letting that dissipate when we open our eyes. So would you teach us how to not lose the peace that we have right now just because we open our eyes? Would you teach us how to keep seeing the deeper truth, the deeper reality, the kingdom that is you? In Jesus' holy and most magnificent name, God, I love you. Once again, I stand up here and I am absolutely blown away by the tender words of mercy and care even in the middle of our failure it's just beyond comprehension and yet you do it over and over and over again you just speak so tenderly to us strongly surely but you give us an invitation and so God we reach down and we pick up these 